by looking at the politics of Nebraska, maybe we can learn a lot about what's really plaguing America in general. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's much too much of a role in this country. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. It would have been so much easier had America split into two distinct nations, North and South. The rural South could adhere to its socially conservative ways, and the North could reflect the cosmopolitan liberalism. Each could go its own way. The urban North could have predictably elected liberal presidents like Mondale or Dukakis, while the rural South could have picked a George Wallace or a Donald Trump. But 800,000 young men gave their lives, and who knows how many lost limbs. At least for now, our many nations are united as one country. So the divide remains powerful between urban liberal Democrats and rural conservative Republicans. That makes electing a president and a functioning U.S. Senate all the more challenging. How far apart are New York City and Nebraska? Is one eternally liberal Democrat and the other permanently right-wing Republican? Out of many, can we ever be one After our guest today, Ross Benish, left Nebraska for New York, he witnessed his polite home state become synonymous with Trump country. In his soon-to-be-published book, Rural Rebellion, Benish explores Nebraska's shifting political landscape to better understand what's plaguing America. He clarifies how Nebraska defies red state stereotypes while offering readers insights into how a frontier state with a tradition of nonpartisanship succumbed to the hardened right. He seeks to bridge America's current political divides by dissecting and contrasting the conservative values he learned growing up in a town of 300 with those of his liberal friends in New York City, where he now lives. Ross Spanish is the award-winning author of three books. He's written for Entertainment Weekly, Esquire, Lincoln Journal Star, The Nation, Omaha World Herald, Rolling Stone, Wall Street Journal, and more. A native of Brainerd, Nebraska, he now cheers on the Huskers from New York City. Thanks for being with us, Ross. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Burton. That was a fantastic introduction. Yeah, I try. Thomas Frank has been a guest <laughs> on this show a few times. He's the author of What's the Matter with Kansas and Listen Liberal, and most recently, The People Know, N-O, about how and why average people in what's been called flyover country vote the way they do when it used to be a hotbed for what had been called prairie populism, perhaps by examining what that term meant, what created it, and why it is no more, we can start to understand the alienation these farmers and otherwise rural people feel and why they have been taken in by right-wing faux populists like Donald Trump. What explains the appeal of the prairie populists in places like Kansas and Nebraska? Your question's really interesting because I originally wanted to title this book Cross of Gold, named after uh-huh. the William J. Bryan speech. 
and uh, the peer reviewers and publisher, my agent, uh, had me go a different route. But um, the reason I wanted to call it that is because a state like Nebraska, um, strong history of populism as well as of nonpartisanship. Brian is by far our um, most famous populist, probably one of the most famous populists in American history. And um, when you think about Brian, what he stood for, um, you know, in that classic gold speech, he was, he was railing against big businesses and he, he attacked bankers, railroads, you know, any, anyone who was big business at the time fighting for the common man. And I find it interesting that our state now has changed so much politically that we have overwhelmingly aligned with the modern Republican party, which stands against all those things. And we've uh, overwhelmingly elected Donald Trump in my home state. And, um, you know, Donald Trump electing someone like him, it feels like we're nailing ourselves to a cross of gold with a billionaire <laughs> narcissist. But um, what they have in common though, um, is Trump is able to uh, make it appear, because I don't believe he's sincere, but he's right. able to make it appear that he is um, railing for the common man. You know, when he talks about Eastern liberals, like people like me now, and, uh, you know, try to discredit the news or scientists, um, he's taking kind of a perverse form of what Brian used to do when he attacked big business. But I, I believe that there's this an emotional appeal that he's fighting for them, that he gets you know people in those areas to believe that he cares for them, and it's a um, it's an expression of righteous anger that maybe they're not able to express themselves, and they can do it through this figure. Uh, interesting, yeah, and I can see how you know the average democrat uh, isn't likely to necessarily appeal to that well tell us first about the title of the book obviously it's not a cross of gold it's rural rebellion how did you come up with that title well the reason i went with rural rebellion is well as you mentioned i'm from town brainer 300 people that's where i've spent most of my life and it's in those places like my hometown where so many of these politically divisive issues have taken hold over time. But politically divisive issues, I'm referring to like social wedge issues that Republicans have made masterful use of to get small town people's votes. Abortion is the big one, but there's other ones, um, you know, guns, immigration lately, even healthcare to an extent. Um, and it's these small towns that are powering the, the GOP right now. You know, they may not get most people's votes, but due to the way our system of government is structured in that it factors in geography as well as population, small towns have a disproportionate influence and um, they've helped push Nebraska rightward. You know, in Nebraska, we have two main cities, Lincoln and Omaha. And even though they lean more or less compared to the rest of the state, Republicans will still easily, uh, whether it's governor, senator, you know, anything statewide will still easily get elected by double digit margins, even when they lose those cities, because they win so heavily in the rural areas. You know, we're talking like 80, 20 margins sometimes. Wow. Um, mm. And the margins weren't always that great. These areas are older. They tend to be more white, very conservative. And they've helped put Trump in office and some of, you know, these other more reactionary Republicans. Yeah. And certainly... Or, uh, rural people feel like they're not heard, and obviously they oh, are. Oh, definitely, they are heard in uh, in Nebraska. There's 
there's always been, I think, a cultural divide between urban and rural America. I mean, it's just always been there. Pretty much everyone has a picture of New York City, loud, bustling, fast-moving, high-rises, <laughs> and something like eight. And, and I apologize if you hear sound coming through my phone, <laughs> because it is loud. There's construction going on right next to our building and cars honking, and I try to escape it, and it's hard to find a quiet place. I am not a big fan of New York City, liberal though I am, but it's just, uh, that's... Uh, uh, I hear you. Well, a friend of mine's father actually taught history at the University of Nebraska, and he was a terrific guy, but I don't have a clear impression of Nebraska. Uh, actually, I was 10 years old when we drove through it in 1961, and I just remember being a lot of farm area, and the football team is the Cornhuskers. It's still pretty rural. Paint us a, a picture for us, please, for like specifically the economic health of the small towns. How are they doing in Nebraska? Okay. The economic health, you know, it really depends on if they've had a school. So many of these towns have lost their schools. They've um, Because of depopulation, they may have to consolidate with, with the nearby town. And when that town loses the school. They tend to lose other jobs and then young families don't move in. You kind of have a chicken and egg scenario. It's tough to determine what is the true causal factor. If they're losing the school because they're going downhill or they're going downhill, you know, they kind of feed on each other. But um, in those towns that have lost the school, they they are not doing well. Um, You you know, you you see boarded up storefronts, empty downtowns, towns that have had the schools, they, they are holding it a little bit at bay, but they're still, Losing population. Um, every time they do the census, and it'll be coming out again, you know, later right, this year. Right. Um, you know, I, I think like over eighty of our ninety-three counties lose population. You know, like it's it just expected, and uh, they have trouble sustaining themselves because you know they're ag dependent, and the ag industry well, it's you know become more corporatized. But then also the mm-hmm. number of people needed to work a large amount of land has significantly dwindled. So instead of having four families on a section of land, you have one family farming many sections of land. And, um, you know, the other people move to the cities and then those towns shrink and their school closes and they get mad and on the cycle goes. On it goes and they're crucified on a cross of gold again. And I wonder if, you know, if, I mean, the laws of economics are what they are and you know more machines make make it the demand for for hands in the fields less and you know i can understand how maybe people feel like that's just the way it is or maybe there's also a feeling of well these big corporate agribusinesses are coming in here and wiping us out is there any kind of uh, uh, antipathy toward them or is it something just people accept do you think i think a lot of people have come to accept it that doesn't mean they're happy about it right. um but you know it's just kind of the reality um i i do think the part of the antipathy though um is toward like democrats uh-huh. you know not being there for them when they want to you know when they right. when these changes happen 30 years ago or so um when um you know after the farm crisis basically of the 80s uh that was the last time you saw a lot of democrats in nebraska 
Well, tell me, I, I being not in farm. Yeah, the FDR coalition isn't there, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to get at. Well, I don't know about the farm crisis of the 1980s. Perhaps uh, refresh our memories a little bit, please. Oh, there was a there was a farm crisis in, in the 80s, and after it, I mean, I don't want to attribute a causal factor one way or the other here, but uh, Democrats indicated that they would, uh, you know have government support for, uh, uh-huh. you know, like government spike supports, you know, government backing of agriculture, things like that. And and that helped people like Jim Exxon and Bob Kerry later uh-huh. um, get elected. And, and that's kind of the last hurrah for the Democrats uh-huh. in, you know, that, that region is they, they were able to, um, people were dissatisfied with the Republican leadership at the time. Yeah. This farm crisis, but then following that, um, you know, not, uh, they haven't been able to hold on to the, the coalition that they had. And the Democrats weren't really there for them. So that would, and that's not really that long ago. And, well, what specifically? I mean, it's just a big, you know, it, it was, uh, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of if it was John Mellencamp. There were, there were, there were concerts, Farm Aid. Oh, yes. I mean, do you recall oh, those? Yes, yes, yes. You know, that was, that was, a lot of people lost their farms. Uh, commodity prices fell. Um, again, I'm not an expert sure. on this. I'm, I'm already talking out of my ass a little bit. Well, that's all right. But, you know, more than we do here, <laughs> I'll tell you. And and now that you remind us, yeah, the farm aid costs. I wish I could have one of my uncles on the phone right now. You know, they'd be able to, to go on and on about this. Oh, uh, I bet. Uh, and if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're looking at the state of Nebraska. Just try to see, get, get a feeling for what that is and, and how it might reflect uh, some of the problems that are plaguing America. Our guest is uh, Ross Benish, who's author of an upcoming book, Rural Rebellion. So what what don't people like about the National Democratic Party? We could probably go on for an hour or so about that alone. But it's so- Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and some of it's caricatures. You know, I don't think it's necessarily representative of the people who are Democrats. But, you know, it's they think they're smug. Uh, I think they look down upon them. Um, you know, the, the classic word is elitism. Um, I'm sure I would be elitist uh, to, to most Nebraskans at this point. I've lived in New York City for six years, and I, and I write books. Um, they, they also, you know, don't like the, the cosmopolitan. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's, you know, become the, the party of, like, degrees and, and cities, basically, yeah. you know, is how, how they view it. And it's become like a way of identifying, you know. If you look at particular policies, this is what's really frustrating is um, if you look at like particular policies in Nebraska, like minimum wage or Medicaid expansion or, or payday loan, uh, capping their interest rates, Nebraskans actually support those. Sure. They, they will support some progressive policies. But then if you, if you have a Democrat lawmaker introduce that and, it, and it's branded as being from a Democrat, they'll hate it. And they'll, you know, use all those terms I, I, I just mentioned against it and say this policy is bad because, you know, X, Y, and Z. Right. associated with Democrats. Uh, you know, it it kills me. Uh, uh, sometimes I, I've been to Democratic meetings here when people say, ooh, what happened? You know, what we have to do is go out and educate people. No, I don't think we do. That doesn't work. That's exactly what we're talking about here. That, you know, people... Uh, that sounds a little demeaning. Yes, it is demeaning. And to me, it's it's listening to people. I mean, I can just imagine outsiders coming in and telling Nebraskans what's good for them. No one likes to be. Oh, that totally happens. And, and I think really? something that's oh tough is, is the local officials 
I, I do think the local officials work hard. They know the state better. Um, of course. They you know, recognize its demographics. But if a national group's coming in and is going to give them money, um, this, just to give you anecdotes, I mean, um, the things I've seen, things I've heard after I've written articles and feedback I've gotten from people, they'll say, like, Nebraska needs to adopt uh, a strategy this other state's doing, you know, uh, by turning out young people or people of color. And, and I don't think national Democrats necessarily stop and think, well, this is a state that ranks 42nd in population density. It's 90% white. It has a major brain drain problem. Uh, that tactic's not going to work there. Yeah. But they try it, and these are the results you get. Yes. And it, it, you know, you talk about the FDR coalition. I'm a big fan of FDR, I'll, I'll admit. And, you know, in the past, there used to be left-leaning prairie populism, as we mentioned briefly. And we used to, Democrats used to be the party of working people, consistently be the party of working people. Now it seems to have flipped around uh, that working people for cultural uh, issues, you know, conservative social issues tend to vote Republican and people in uh, lower population areas tend to vote Republican. And wealthier people, highly educated people with degrees, as you say, they're the Democrats. You know, it just, it's frustrating to me as a Democrat uh, that we don't listen somehow you know you can't as you were saying you know they come and say do this do that this is what worked in other states just go in and listen to people one thing i learned from being a candidate is when you when you don't talk when you listen people think you're really smart you know because it's them <laughs> talking and what, what about listening and you know it seems like republicans get this that you know all right nebraska may have a low population but it has uh, you know, two U.S. senators. Two Senate votes. Add two Senate votes, exactly. I don't like to call college votes. You Absolutely. know, I mean, it matters. It does matter. And it's also a place where if you want to pick up any momentum um, for right. a nationwide push, I mean, if you want to get, you know, something like marijuana pass, right. or, um, you know, back in the day it was um, gay marriage before that became federally recognized. Um, you know, it's a state where you could try to pass something because it doesn't take a whole lot of money uh, because it's, you know, it's fewer people. If you want to say we passed X law and num- X number of states, you can get that done in Nebraska a lot cheaper than you could in California <laughs> or Texas. Um, so there, there are a lot of opportunities like that, but um, yeah, I think your point remains. Yeah. We, we just have to listen. And you say that if you just look back 20 years ago, we were actually pretty middle of the road ideologically. And of course I remember Bob. And people are surprised when I say that <laughs> they, well, we're so far right now that it feels like it's blasphemous to, uh, you know, bring up people like Bob Kerry or even Chuck Hagel, who was a moderate Republican. Oh, that's right. Chuck Hagel. I for- yeah, a very decent guy. So, so what, what happened? Huh? I'm sorry, what? <laughs> oh, no, I just said he served with Obama. Oh, uh, yeah. Chuck Hagel. Oh, yeah. Oh, what happened? Oh. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a polarization of the parties. You know, everything's so nationalized now. Yes. To give you an example, Omaha had a mayor race um, a few years ago. It was about potholes initially, who's going to fix the potholes, and then national press organizations and other political groups start looking at the Democratic candidate's voting record on abortion, and suddenly it's nationalized that he wasn't as pro-choice as these people in Washington, D.C. wanted him to be, and it became this huge controversy, and it hurt the Democratic candidate for something that really has no effect on whether you know that person would be a, um, a good mayor of a mid-sized city in the middle of the country. 
so everything just so nationalized that um, people like Ben Nelson and Bob Kerry, sure. they used to get elected in Nebraska by deviating from their party on something. Yes. Um, you know, like Bob, like Ben Nelson, for instance, big insurance guy. Um, you know, he also pretty anti-abortion on most of his votes. That helped them win conservative voters. But now when you are an R or you are a D, the parties have become so bifurcated mm. that um, – Voters just kind of rely on that information, and it's harder for people to, you know, it's harder for, um, if I just take the one issue of abortion, it's harder for a Republican now to be pro-choice, and it's harder for a Democrat to right. to be, you know, anti-abortion or, or right. pro-life. And um, that makes it tough in Nebraska where the voter registration leans heavily Republican right now. And I wonder, you know, liberals, progressives ask me, why lower-income people consistently vote against their own economic interests? I, I don't have an answer, but all I can think of is that cultural issues drive them more. It's conventional. Oh, it's to- totally cultural issues, because, you know, What's economic the power? interests are just one interest. And, what, what is, and I think abortion is the biggest one. Well, I, I tend to agree, and I, it, it does frustrate me. I, I mean, know I keep bringing it up, but that's kind of the story in Nebraska <laughs> politics. Well, you know, I, I'm pro-choice, but I also feel like, you know, we should. there's other issues out there as well. How dare I say there's other issues? Oh, well, there absolutely. are other issues, like economic issues, like, you know, keeping t- small towns vibrant, like bringing in health care, things like that. And we alienate you know, uh, evangelicals and a lot of Catholics, which used to be our base. And I, I, I don't know why we, you know, we get sucked in just talking about abortion, homosexuality, and guns. Why, what is, what about the strength and power of those particular cultural issues? Why, why, why do they flood over economic interest issues? They're emotionally salient. Uh, you know, I grew up in a, a very Catholic household. And um, w- when you think about like these people who are voting very conservatively, um, what I'm, I don't even call it today's, I don't even know what you call the party under Trump. It's not traditional conservatism. No, it's radical. Whatever, whatever Trump, whatever party you want to give to Trump. But they're voting with them um, to think about the community they live in, you know? So like there's not many organizations uh, around. Um, the thing that brings people together, if it's not the bar, um, is the church and, and the church, um, especially under, um, the, you know, if you're looking at just Catholic church, I mean, this, this is, it goes to the evangelicals to the Christian, right. Um, these cultural wedges have just been so reinforced. I mean, you know, the number of sermons people hear about abortion, you know, they're not even going there to get politics, but it's just, it's hit at you all the time. And then you have, you know, the right wing media, um, talk radio, you know, Fox, and uh, today it's Facebook pages and, and Twitter, um, layering on top of that. And I just think it becomes this big mass of messaging that reinforces um, those issues to be most important. Uh-huh. And then, you know, they're led by politicians to be the most divisive. And yeah, like you said, there's so many things that are much more important than a few cultural issues, but what do we spend 70% of our time talking about? Unfortunately, you know, it's those, it's those cultural issues. So I think it's reinforced through the community. You hear it at church, oh, you, you talk about it at the game and it, it becomes um, self-perpetuating. Yeah. Interesting. And I can see how, you know, one message comes from out there, you know, from the two coasts and another message comes from your community. 
that you know, and that seems. I think we have to pay attention to that, and and we really don't. I wonder if Hillary Clinton even tried for Nebraska. Did she? Did she go there? And you know, she's just projected this sense of entitlement and elitism. And I, I can just see that that's sort of like something we really need to learn from. But I wonder, sometimes it seems like the Democratic Party keeps inflicting wounds on itself by not listening to this and just saying, well, we know what's right. And uh, and not, not talking enough about the issues that matter to people in Nebraska. Your thoughts? Um, you know, I, I want to say it's just Hillary. I, I think in Nebraska, people are tired of the Clintons in general. You know, by the time... Bill Clinton left office um, and wasn't very well liked in Nebraska. So, you know, Hillary, an extension of Bill as the Clintons, um, that, that's a tough sell in that part of the country. And, you know, the messaging against her had been going on for, you know, 30 years, you know. So, I mean, you've been hearing all these things about this person, even before you even look at their um, position on certain issues, people you know, had a pretty strong idea of how they felt about the Clintons and they, and they didn't want any more of that. But, uh, Biden did yeah. better, certainly in Omaha. Um, but I think also part of that was seeing, um, especially, you know, in, in Omaha, not so much the rural part of the state, seeing what, you know, four years of Trump was like and yeah. people probably not wanting, it's probably more, you know, to do with Trump than Biden being stronger. Yeah. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I yeah, I, I don't think, uh, Trump won it so much in 2016, but that, that Hillary lost it. And, and, and he at least appeared, as you say, gave the impression that he was listening to, to people that the Democratic Party has kind of uh, abandoned. And I do think it's interesting that uh, all, all across America, and I'm guessing in Nebraska as well, polls show that the majority is progressive on the issues, yet people often vote for conservative candidates and right-wing candidates, you say that, quote, progressive issue-oriented campaigns are not always lost causes. People who are willing to work to advance certain issues, minus the unrelenting rancor of contemporary partisan politics, can get the job done. And I wonder if, what are the factors involved there? Is it because, uh, and people don't really know about the unicameral uh, legislature there, How, why is it that you know, if you go for progressive issue-oriented causes, sometimes you can make it, but just not the candidates, him or herself. Well, you know, part of it is like a, a candidate's going to be running on a, a platform that includes dozens of issues. So you, you may be able to isolate a few issues within that Republican candidate that Nebraskans don't like, but overall they, they will still, you know, support that candidate that they identify with probably because of a, you know, a cultural Wedge issue would be my guess. But um, I think another large part of it, too, is that when something is presented outside of a partisan context and it's just an issue, it's a lot harder to attack it or to demonize it. So, um, like, take, take example like, um, like Obamacare. You know, once President Obama pushed that law forth, a Nebraska politician like Ben Nelson, who provided the final vote for that legislation, by the way, um, vote for it. You know, you have that face, you have that name. It's the Cornhusker kickback. It's Obamacare. It's, you know, it's, it's something that you can pinpoint and, 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 you know, hate. But when it's just providing health care to people, that's much harder psychologically to run attack ads against. And I, I think that's why those issues do better 
when they're presented like, you know, in one paragraph on a ballot than when someone of a party is introducing them. The tough thing though is ballot measures. Um, you're only able to get so many things on the ballot e- each year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they tend to happen in, in years where they want to turn out the, the vote, like in, in presidential elections, you know, Nebraska might have four or five ballot issues on a, on a, during a given election. And they had to raise several million dollars to get those up. Um, meanwhile, you know, our, our state legislature is going to pass hundreds of bills. So sure. there is room for progressives to do that, but keep in mind the, the volume of, you know, ballot measures you can get through is going to be, you know, much less than if you were able to put your own people into office. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, people can connect with that. Now, as we mentioned, Nebraska is a unicameral legislature. Instead of a state house and state senate, there's just one body. And if I read correctly, it's nonpartisan. How does this affect party polarization and how people decide their vote? Yes, Nebraska has the most unusual state legislature in the United States. It started in the 30s under uh, George Norris was the big person who pushed it. We have one house. The parties aren't officially on the ballot, so we have an open primary system. So after our primaries, the, the top two people advance to the general election, you know, regardless of what they're registered as. So we have many elections where it's two registered Democrats or two registered Republicans. We, we, you know, we don't have minority and majority speakers. So they are able to get more done. You know, I, I think it's really effective. It takes some of the partisanship out. However, um, It has become much more partisan since 2000, uh, even though it's officially nonpartisan. And that's due to, I would say, two really big things, maybe three. First thing is term limits. They adopted term limits in 2000. What term limits did is that it increased the number of people who turn out. And basically the political parties get much more involved in recruiting and um, deciding who will run after that. The other thing is campaign finance deregulation, most most notably Citizens United. Mm-hmm. There's tons of money pouring in these nonpartisan races, and it's you know starting to resemble every other state legislature where hmm. it's you know Democrats versus Republicans. And then the third thing would be our current governor who targets Republicans who vote against him. So if a Republican didn't vote the way he wanted him to on the death penalty, he would target him with someone you know way much further to the right during the primary and get that person out of office. And that's contributed to a rightward tilt. But our, our legislature is more progressive than it would be if it was a two-house legislature. And they, you know, we don't have voter ID laws, for instance, yeah, because wow. they're able to block that. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're able to be more sensible, I think, because the, the parties aren't as involved. But since, two, since the year 2000, and I use, I use that as the big benchmark, that's the year term limits were passed. Since then, it, it's definitely more polarized than it was, you know, the previous 70 years. Yeah, I guess it's, uh, you know, we're all affected by the uh, that internet thingy. <laughs> um, and one might think that emotionally driven issues like abortion, immigration, big government would solidify social conservative in Nebraska. But you, you mentioned issues like the death penalty, uh, DACA youth, uh, you know, people who have grown up in America, but, you know, their parents were illegally here, uh, hiking gas taxes to fix roads, uh, voter ID laws, cutting funding to state university system, and even medical marijuana. How do these play in Nebraska, which is seen as such a red state? Uh, well, it really goes, you know, issue by issue. Like, um, for instance, the, the, the gas tax w- w- was passed in the legislature. 
I think it played pretty well, but a lot of Republican money came in to target them because of like the Grover Nor- Norquist thing, you know, thou shall not have a, a tax increase. You know, our governor definitely runs on that. So uh, yeah, some yeah. legislators were, were slapped on the wrist for that, but I, I don't think there was really a, a pushback. We needed to, to fix the roads. DACA, um, you know, Nebraska kind of has a mixed relationship on immigration because, you know, on one hand, we settle a lot of refugees prior to Trump coming into office. We settled more refugees per capita oh, wow. than, than any other state in the country. And, you know, we've been pretty welcoming to, to immigrants in many ways. But um, because so many of our elected officials have embraced, you know, the, the far right, you know, there's definitely been this element that's anti-immigrant like you know you, you see it with with trump obviously but sure. this happened before then even and um on that measure uh our legislature was able to push the uh, daca issue and get those kids driver's licenses but we were the last state in the country to do so and there was a lot of opposition to those lawmakers doing that so you know that's a very divisive issue now on the university that's also another thing that I think is driven by national Republicans. In this case, it's their growing resistance to higher education. Mm. Um, you know, higher education is kind of portrayed as like a boogeyman, <laughs> kind of like journalists are <laughs> in some ways, or, or scientists during during the COVID era. Jeez. And um, yeah. there's there's wide support for the for the university. People love the university in the state. And um, but um, man, whenever there's been a budget shortfall. Uh, there's a handful of far-right state senators and as well as our governor who really put the screws to the university and, um, you know, kind of dangle it out there like uh, they're going to be the thing that gets cut. They're like the, the item of discretionary spending. And, and, and what's frustrating, though, is instead of attacking it directly, like we have this much money and we want to take it away, it gets presented through a cultural angle lens. They, they go out and they find some conservative on campus who they believe their free speech has been uh, uh, silenced and they, uh, you know, amplify that a million times over. And then suddenly this dispute between two individuals uh, snowballs and it becomes like into this thing where it's about money and what does it mean to have a liberal in university and a rough state? And uh, it's, it's unfortunate because, you know, if you don't present it from a culture war lens, I still believe that the support for the university is pretty strong. It'd be stronger though if we won some damn football games. So. Yeah, I was I was wondering about that. Quite frankly, uh, anyway, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is uh, Ross Bennis, who's uh, got a new book coming out, "Rural Rebellion." We're talking about Nebraska, and you know how that's just such a good way to look at what America is. And when I was in the state senate here in New Hampshire. I was uh, I was amazed that conservative Republicans were the biggest backers of municipalizing what had been privately owned utilities such as water and electricity, local ownership and control. Are they popular positions in Nebraska? We are the only state in the U.S. where all of our public utilities, all of our um, like electricity, all of our utilities are publicly owned. We are uh, a big public power state. That, that, that's another thing that goes back to Georgia Norris. But, um, you know, th- that's an issue that I don't even know if people consider progressive. It's just kind of like a way of life. Like you have, the, you know, yeah. you, you get your power from the municipal system. You don't think about Con Ed. It's just like, 
Um, I, I mean, gosh, I remember when I moved to New York and <laughs> my, my, so I get my electric bills. I was like, Oh, these are private companies. You know, I've never experienced this before. Yeah. Um, never thought about that as, as a progressive thing. Um, me- I think there's white support for that. I, I, I have a, God, I hope they're not attacking that. It's been a great thing for the state. Oh, it's a wonderful, I'd like to see more of it. I mean, and that's very traditional uh, prairie populism to have public ownership of, of the utilities and to serve the community that it's, that it's in. What about, and I, I can imagine there's very few doctors and hospitals, and I wonder about potential appeal of Medicare for all. I wonder if that can be uh, made, framed and made to resonate and to, to perhaps bring more doctors and hospitals in. That's going to be a tough situation. It's going to be real tough. Uh, that's one of those things that probably have to go through ballot measure, you know, it, but they had such a tough time expanding Medicaid. Uh, and even after they expanded it, the governor delayed the rollout for two years and, you know, Nebraska passed Medicaid, but um, I think only like eight counties or nine counties and we have over 90 counties. Wow. So like, you know, 10% of counties voted for it. You know, mo- most areas did not, but those rural areas definitely need some, some government support. I mean, hospitals are shutting down hard to get care out there. You talk about mental health, you throw that in there. That's really difficult to get care if you're, you know, a few hundred miles away from a, from a big city. Um, but, and people, people don't trust the government. So it's a tough sell. And if a Democrat's pushing yeah. it, it's a really tough sell. <laughs> so, you know, your, your best, best bet is, is through some sort of initiative if you can swing it. Um, we'll have to see how the Medicaid expansion goes first, though, before they, before they really try to expand it. So interesting that, you know, if something's going to bring health care to the people, if a, if a Democrat's for it, ah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt it badly. That's an interesting uh, way to understand what's going on. And, you know, there's the party, the big Democratic National Party, which has its favorites, clearly, and its people that it doesn't like. For example, Bernie Sanders. The liberal elite pretty much hated him. And, you know, the my impression of, of the Midwest, which is huge, obviously, and prairie populism, was that progressive populism was was strongest in the farm states. And I wonder, aside from the Republican Party plastering Bernie Sanders with the scary word socialism, which may have done it altogether, I don't know, would his kind of aggressively anti-elitist, anti-corporate power populism connect with and have a better chance of inspiring Nebraskans? What do you think? I think the tough part there is someone who pushes those types of issues is going to be branded as like a big government person. And that's like almost like uh-huh. a big government's like a, like a pejorative, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think he, he definitely appealed to, to progressives in Omaha. And um, I, I do think people like some of the stuff he, he stood for and said, but I just don't see Bernie Sanders um, type of candidate doing well statewide, perhaps in Omaha or, uh, or in Lincoln, you know, like in certain parts of the state. But um, but the but the farming wide, it's just it's, the the farming community. No, that's that's interesting. That's good. Yeah, to know. I just yeah, I I I I mean, maybe you'll find someone else who says the exact opposite of me, but I, I just don't see it happen in there. 
I don't know anybody else who knows Nebraska, that's for sure. Except, well, my my good friend's dad, you know, who passed away a while ago, used to teach at the university there, but he hasn't been there in a long, long time. So we'll have to rely on you, Ross. Um, and you say it's not just Nebraska. It's all these states with low population density, where partisanship has become more predictable by their low population density. Say more about that, Oh, absolutely. Please. Tell us, tell yeah, us what so, you mean. Um, yeah, so it, it's not just total population because, you know, there's states like Rhode Island or Connecticut that don't have many people, and it's just because they're a small area. But they're dense. Area. But if you look at just, if you look at density yeah. or urbanization, you can use various different measures. Um, it's a strong predictor. I wrote an article for 538 recently, mm-hmm. and I looked at the 25 states that had the lowest population density. So, you know, the, 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 the bottom half in population density, those 25 states, they get 50 senators. Well, 40 of those 50 are Republicans and only one fourth of the U S lives in those states. So, you know, they're, they're almost on their way to a uh, majority in the Senate by just, you know, overwhelmingly winning one fourth of the population. They only have to win 10 seats in the other three fourths of the population. So, uh, the population density has become an incredible predictor. Part of that, I think, is the rhythms of life when you are in a place like Brainerd um, don't make it quite as clear how the government benefits you and, or how you know democratically sponsored programs benefit you, even though they clearly do. Rural areas have more government funds spent on them per capita than urban areas, largely because of economies of scale and, you know, uh, having to build things out for a few people, but it just doesn't feel that way. And so much of this is about emotion and feeling rather than it is about actual <laughs> policy or fact. So, you know, when you're out in that uh, farmhouse and there's few people around you, um, you know, participating in, in like a big health exchange or uh, having gun control, those aren't as clear to you. You know, uh, something like the Green New Deal, yes. tampering down pollution, that might not be as clear to you if, if you... Uh, have a pristine field in your backyard and then you turn on the city and you see like pollution in New York city and, and Baltimore and you know, all these other huge cities. Um, I, obviously we can argue why that's not the case, like logically, but it just, you know, feels like the government isn't, you know, you're out there on your own, you can do this on your own. The government isn't going to help you. And, and that really, um, tanks Democrats in those areas. And I believe that's why population density correlates so strongly uh, with Republicanism, that and the wedge issues. Very interesting, yeah, that uh, if you don't see it, you know, the pollution, you're right, if you live in an area with nice, clean air all the time and the environment seems to be pretty good, doesn't necessarily connect. But it's interesting that uh, you bring up TransCanada's Keystone XL pipeline was to go through Nebraska, that's a curious uh, uh, situation. How did that play politically and culturally? And what does that say about Nebraskans and the continued power of their sense of heritage? Well, I think that was an issue that showed where there is potential to uh, gather people and block the uh, excesses of big business. In this case, a foreign oil company. I mean, the environmental activists who block that did a great job of gathering people who were, you know, Republicans and Democrats, just cross racial, cross parties. I mean, they had a, a pretty broad coalition to stand up against this big corporation that, um, you know, threatened to 
damage uh, precious resource in Nebraska, in this case, the, the Ogallala Aquifer, where we get much of our drinking water. So I think that's an issue that shows that, that you know, there, there is potential, there is hope to, to rally people for a greater cause. But what I'd point out about that issue is it was done outside of a partisan context. So to be able to translate that uh, organizing and that power into some sort of um, elected official in Nebraska is much more challenging. Interesting. So just uh, people working together on their own as a community and outside the partisan political context. That's that's fascinating. I can't imagine that there were any, you know, national Democrats that came in to try to, to hitch their wagon, so to speak, to the uh, anti-pipeline thing. Uh, it was just uh, local people and perhaps even caring about the... Well, and uh, local activists, too, you know, yeah, those yeah. activist groups, definitely. Oh, yeah. and But yeah, not, it, wasn't, it wasn't the Democratic Party. It was, no. you know... Demo grassroots and activism driven. Yeah, the Democratic Party doesn't like to uh, alienate their big money sources. That's one thing that I think. Well, and it's probably good that it wasn't driven by one party or the other, because then it would have turned into this whole other thing, and maybe they wouldn't have got as much done then. Yeah, true. And it was a good thing. And I, I give a lot of credit there. And I wonder if people care, you know, that it was affecting uh, the, the Native Americans that uh, may still be there. Well, yeah, that's that was part, part of the protest that, you know, they were involved in. Uh, I remember one of the um, one of the protests they had was planting Ponca seed corn along the pipeline route. You know, as a yeah. way to generate attention to the issue. So um, they they did a great job there gathering. And you know, and other states did this too. Um, the pipeline was was going all the way from Canada, you know, through the U.S. But um, but Nebraska, I mean, as much as any other state, I would say, you know, helped put the kibosh on that. Uh, well, it'll be interesting. I, I imagine Biden's going to go back to the policy that where it was before Trump with Keystone. Who knows? It's a blank slate. You know, it's been tough to follow that thing because it's been like 10 years and there's been so many court cases and, oh, yeah. uh, and you know, legislature. It's been all the the number of challenges have been insane. And there's been so much of a, uh, a a fire hose of information coming at us from all different directions all the time. It's tough to keep track of such things. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Ross Bennis, who's got a new book out, Rural Rebellion. We're talking about Nebraska. And young people nationally do tend to be more progressive. Is that also true in Nebraska? And are young people staying in the state, or is that part of the brain drain? It's, it's part of the brain drain. You know, um, young people in Nebraska, especially those with degrees, often leave. I mean, I'm an, an example of that. Um, there, there are some great companies in Omaha and Lincoln. Nebraska is fantastic. But for many industries, uh, quite frankly, you know, you'll get better opportunities elsewhere. That, that doesn't necessarily mean New York or California. I mean, a lot of times it means Denver, Chicago, Minnesota, Kansas City. Um, there's a lot of people that leave and we have, uh, you know, one of the worser brain drains in the country, which is tough for Democrats because that party's coalition, uh, a big part of it is, you know, young professionals. Yes, yes. And, uh, when, when they're constantly losing them, um, it makes it harder to, to build a, a winning coalition. I'm just curious about about Trump. I mean, he he seems so just completely 
unhinged and just off the wall. I wonder if people, you're, you're no longer in Nebraska, but I wonder if, if the conservatives who voted for him are starting to think, ooh, this guy's a little nuts. Uh, are they they're still sticking with him? I don't know. So, well, so I, the, the data tells me they're still sticking with him, well, uh, given the support he receives outside, uh, especially outside of Omaha Lincoln, but uh-huh, you can get 60% sure. of the vote within the state. However, anecdotally, my parents actually became Democrats uh, in the last year, been Republicans for longer than I've been alive. Uh-huh. And um, it, it, was, it was their dissatisfaction with Trump and Republicans enabling his nuttiness <laughs> that drove them out of the party. But I, I think they're kind of atypical. It's not like we saw like, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of Nebraska Republicans following that. But, you know, there are definitely people out there who are conservative Nebraskans who have taken notice and gone, oh, God, <laughs> what is this? Yeah, I, I can't help but think so. But leave it to Democrats. I mean, here's a tremendous opportunity. We'll probably blow it. You know, that's what we usually do. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's you. You you mentioned uh, the party chair Jane Klebe. She's interesting there. The the Democratic Party chair. Uh, she's got some ideas about how to perhaps breathe some life back into the Democratic Party within Nebraska. Tell us about what she's up to, please. Yeah, she had also had a book out, um, I think it was about a year ago. I, I wrote a review of her book for The American Prospect. Um, and, and today we were uh, tweeting at each other because I think the Nebraska Democrats were, were mad about something I wrote. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyways, um, yeah, you know, she, she, she has a tough job um, oh, yeah. to, to tell Democrats in the state, it, it, you know, I think she's got a lot of energy. She certainly has ideas about um, the Democratic Party focusing more on rural areas, which I think is good. Yeah. You know, trying to bring national attention to this problem. I mean, because it's not just Nebraska that no, Democrats are having this problem. So she's done a great job of, bring, of bringing a spotlight to it. Um, but then carrying that out and getting wins in the state is just really challenging. Yeah. There's a lot of forces working against them. And this is this has been 30 years in the making. You know, it's not like mm. uh, this is the fault of anyone who's just walked in the office the last few years. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they have a lot of inertia to overcome uh-huh. in Nebraska. The, the Nebraska Democrats do. And I, I do want the, the, the big bellwether. I still would say would be the Omaha mayor race next year. If they can win that, maybe they'll generate some momentum. Which race is this? Omaha mayor race. Uh huh. Omaha mayor race. Omaha mayor race, and then you know, in 2022, Omaha second congressional district. I mean, I think those are their best chances uh-huh. at a win. And Republicans hold like everything in Nebraska. <laughs> I mean, two thirds of the legislature, the governor, all the wow. state constitutional officers, uh, you know, the U.S. senators, House reps. I mean, you know, Omaha mayor list goes on. But if they could win the Omaha mayor race and maybe CD two, you know, I give people some hope, something to look at. Um, maybe help inspire some more candidates to run who don't feel defeatist about it. And, you know, maybe that could turn the progress around. I can't help but think that if the Democrats could, uh, you know, screw up the courage and perhaps take on some of their potential big money sources like the big corporations, agribusiness, and the oil industry, et cetera, et cetera, if they had some courage and, and wanted to be seen as on the side of average people in Nebraska, that 
they they could do better. And I, I I'm assuming that that's what uh, Jane Klebe and others in the party are, are recommending because you know it does frustrate the heck out of me when people in the Northeast where I'm coming from now say, oh, forget the 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 Midwest, forget the small states. We're never going to get them. Just give it up, and you know, just the Republicans, they're bad guys. Uh, and buying into the the whole Trump uh, uh, setup, I just I don't think that needs to be the case. We we should be able to go after you know if we're just you know urban and not rural. I I just that would bother me very much. I think we really need to be able to represent the entire country if we're going to be a national party. But as legendary legendary Westerner Will Rogers said. I'm not a member of any organized party. I'm a Democrat. And as Mr. <laughs> and Mr. As, as Mr. Natural said, twas ever thus. The party is perhaps a little less divided now that we won the presidency. But divisions do remain between corporatist and populist. We can't change our stripes on our liberal cultural values and issues. But if we focus on issues, other issues that rural people care about, might this... 2021 be a unique moment, a unique opportunity to reassess and learn and once again connect with the rural base. How do you have any sense of optimism on moving forward along those lines? Uh, you know, not. Democrats didn't perform that great in the, you know, nationally, not just Nebraska, um, you know, in these Congress races. I, I, yeah. I'm just not feeling terribly optimistic right now. Perhaps it's because I've been stuck in my apartment for almost a year <laughs> and haven't been able to go yeah, anywhere. So it's really hard to feel optimist yeah. uh, right now. Um, I think you're on to something though with, with the, uh, the, the, you know, talking big business idea. Um, it made me think of the immigration issue. And if you look at polling in Nebraska, the, the university of Nebraska does this annual poll of, of rural residents if you, if you, um, you ask people, um, you know, how they feel about immigration, you know, should, should illegal immigrants be deported, ask them all sorts of questions like that. And then you ask them, how should you treat the companies that employ illegal immigrants? There is, um, stronger animosity toward the corporations who employ illegal immigrants than it is against those individuals. And, um, you know, some of that xenophobic, feeling this, you know, far right element that's developed toward immigration, in Nebraska, if they could channel that toward the beef packing plants and say, well, you know, Hey, you know, these are, these are corporations who are paying these people, nothing who have cut the unions who have taken away all benefits from workers. And the only people who are going to work here are people they can recruit from other countries. They might have something more to work with there. So who, your book, it's a rural rebellion. Who who is it targeted to, and why would people want to pick it up? Sell it. Oh man, I feel like I'm throwing out a book proposal. Well, I would say it's targeted toward any reader who is curious why low population areas have gone so far to the right, and I think people should pick it up because towns like Brainerd, where I talk about extensively in the book, have been largely forgotten, and people, you know sort of paid attention after Trump got elected, but then they kind of went back to not paying attention. But, you know, it's a, it's a big part of America and, and our story of how we came into this weird political moment. So uh, yeah. I would encourage anyone who's interested in uh, understanding people in the middle of the country to please pick it up. 
and I think it would be in everybody's best interest to understand the middle of the country rather than just uh, dismiss it and, and keep on going as we've been going. Thank you so much. This is very helpful, and uh, I hope your book does well. Very interesting. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping uh, Democracy Alive. <laughs> thanks, Bert, for having me on. came up from Goodland, Kansas I turned 18 today I'm college bound for Lincoln Nebraska's where I'll stay It's been my dream all my life To play football on this field And if I ever get the chance I'll make you this deal Well, I'll work hard, I'll do my part You won't hear me complain I'll never go down easy I swear I'll pull my weight You hear that, Mr. Osborne, I'll do Sure would be an honor, sir, to call you coach someday. Here in the middle of the Middle West, we ain't afraid to fight. Well, I've looked up to you, sir, now I'll look you in the Something calling me Like I've never heard before It's a red and white Freight train And I wanna get on board Well I work hard I'll do my part You won't hear me complain I'll never go down easy I swear I'll pull my To call you coach someday I came up from Goodland, Kansas Turned 18 today From college bound for Lincoln Nebraska's where